everybody, welcome uh, to our next episode of Marketeers Clubhouse. I'm Jamie Kale, I'm the host. Uh, I've got a, an, a very interesting guest today. Um, his name is Joe Previch. Joe, welcome. I'm going to welcome you before I get too deep. Um, yeah, I'm happy to have you. Um, Joe has literally a marketing student's wet dream of a resume. If you go look at his LinkedIn, um, if you're not impressed by what he's done, you're not reading it. Um, I, I want to start. I just want to highlight it. And we're going to go back through this. Uh, associate editor at Snowboard Magazine as a very young man. You then went over and helped Red Bull uh, change and tweak their sports marketing and ended up being brand manager for Sean White, which is mind blowing. You then ended up at Oakley, which is where I met you, uh, and thankfully so. You then went to Zeal Optics as a director of marketing and creative director. There's a, this like tweak there, which is amazing. Uh, I'm going to say it wrong. Fall Raven. How do you actually pronounce it? Yeah, Fial Raven. Fial Raven uh, as VP and a fairly generic VP, which I, I imagine was more of a go-to-market role than just strictly sales or marketing. It was like an overall go-to-market. Uh, you ended up at Mehmet uh, as a managing director and CEO of North America, which is amazing. You're growing like you could literally see you grow up here which is unbelievable uh you end up at a company called iBobs which is an eyewear company um as VP uh, for sales and marketing and now you're at one of truthfully hilariously one of my favorite companies Benchmade which is uh, a knife company uh and I literally it's not a, a Benchmade knife but I'm literally surrounded uh by a couple different knives on my desk and my favorite knife by far, which I actually tried to find today, but it's either in my skid steer, one of my tractors, or I dropped it in a field. I will find it again. I've had it for 35 or 34 years ish. It's a, uh, a CQC seven bench made designed by Emerson. Mm -hmm. It's an original issue. Uh, it's been sharpened a million times. It's in perfect condition. Uh, and it literally is the knife that I carry around with me and I'm like cutting bale twine and like it is unbelievable product and, and like literally yeah sure. like, like it's incredible yeah they're incredible things like anyone who doesn't carry like a, I don't even know what you categorize these but like a tactical-esque um folding knife uh if you don't know Benchmade you're not paying attention um they are the industry standard in my opinion for um everything cross board brand uh killer product the, the whole deal anyways that's where you are now uh i want to go back um i can it's funny because when you look through your linkedin you can see you growing through mm. from role to role to role and i want to just you know i want to understand how you did it, the decisions you made sort of going from piece to piece, you don't get assigned Sean white just before the 2010 Olympics without having proven everything to that point. So you you've done a masterful job with your career. And I like to think that marketing students uh, stumble across our podcast and look at this and go, this is actually a guy's career that I want to look at. 
Um, so let's go all the way back. And even if you wanted to go back before you get your first um, sort of start in the industry at snowboarder, I started out yeah. as a 15 year old kid in a bike shop, well, a 14 year old kid in a bike shop. Where did, where'd you start? Where'd you come from? Yeah. That's a great place. And, and it's honestly a huge part of the foundation of who I am. So thanks for the intro. Awesome to be here. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to hear, you know, a life lived kind of read back to you. And it, it feels like day one of my first job still today, which is really interesting and kind of a nice validation that you're like, you know what, this, this was the right path for me, but I didn't know really what that path was until, um, you know, I, I, started growing up in Northern Minnesota, right? So I, I grew up just south of the Canadian border in a small area called the Iron Range, uh, which mm. is about three and a half hours uh, north of Minneapolis. It's about an hour south of the Canadian border near the Boundary Waters, very remote. You know, I lived 20 miles outside the nearest town. The nearest town was Eveleth, right? Which is, you know, about known for hockey and cold weather. And, and hunting and uh, fishing, we're, we're I'm good, guessing. We're good at both, yeah. yeah. Hunting and fishing for sure. And that was a huge part of my life was living you know, in the outdoors, away from people, had a younger brother and a golden retriever, and we just we just played. Mm. And um, as I was becoming a you know a guy, you know, growing up as a kid, I was always entrepreneurial. I was always starting businesses and trying things, and I owned you know lawn services and you know sold painted rocks and always had stuff that I was trying to figure out like wh what am I going to be? And ultimately, like the thing that clicked for me was. You know, snowboarding became the thing that I felt really connected to. And I think a big part of that was this sense of bigness of the world that I didn't really feel in that small little town, you know, 30 miles from the nearest town, which had nothing really in it for me other than uh, what was kind of there for the last generations. It's a mining community. It was kind of what you did. You stayed in that community. And that was just not what I wanted. I wanted to go and experience things that were big. And to me, snowboarding was that bigness. It was this really fun kind of rebellious way to, I was into punk rock. I was into, you know, trying to figure out who I was and had a rebellious spirit that I didn't really know how to rebel until I <laughs> kind of figured out that snowboarding was a really fun expression of that kind of teenage angst and um, also a really fun group of people. You know, I, I didn't really have a super strong knit group of friends at my high school. Um, my friends came through snowboarding and thank goodness, because I didn't really have that many that were right next to me at home. Uh, and I think that that made me really desire those connections and experiences because they weren't there every day. So I'd look forward to those weekends together and, uh, pretty quickly on, I learned that like, as I got into snowboarding, there was this really cool culture around it that would read snowboarder magazine at, you know, just dive right into it. And I, I was like, these places are incredible. This, this, this world is so big. You know, maybe I can get there some way, somehow, and I could snowboard in these destinations. And as I became, you know, a more advanced snowboarder, I also realized that I was never going to be that good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, those are, despite my greatest efforts, I really, really wanted to be good. I just kind of knew that I wasn't great at it, uh, but I loved it. I loved it so much. And so um, I always had a desire to write and to create. And so I had started the high school newspaper, um, you know, when I was like, I don't know, 14, 15, something like that. And um, I remember I was in Miss Terrell's class and, uh, you know, I was writing this thing. I said, hey, if I print them off, you know, I'll give them away. 
it was really cool. And I could see, like, I got people to want to do that with me. And we were distributing, you know, the, the Virginia voice was what it was called, right? And we did goofy stuff. And um, then I, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if I, like, started a magazine around snowboarding and action sports? Because I loved it way more than I loved, like, the school stuff I was writing about. Mm. And I, I loved the magazine, Snowboarder Trans World, right? I was like, this was these were my heroes. So I thought maybe I could be, maybe I could try this. So I started a magazine with a couple other buddies uh, from other towns. And I, I remember the day we were out at my cabin. I was like, we're going we're gonna to do it. We're going to start a magazine. You guys in? They're like, we're in. And uh, Microsoft Publishing, I was making it at home. I was selling ads to, you know, people's parents and local hotels. And you know, my dad took little ads out and I created the whole, um, the whole thing. And it was, a, it was a big moment for me because I found like what I was great at. Like I, mm. I was really passionate and I, I was able to kind of create this really fun community. We threw launch parties for the magazine and had bands and, you know, we were, we, we were selling these magazines, uh, out of our backpacks in school. And it gave us a sense of, um, purpose at the local resort too. You know, we were doing photo shoots and traveling to the Minneapolis area. And, um, I remember that, you know, I, I had done this first issue of the magazine and I, um, I had sent it to snowboarder. And they had a zine competition at the time, which mm. could have been the catalyst for why, which was, and maybe it was Transworld that had the magazine competition, but um, it was like, there were these, these local zines that were coming to life. And so I sent mine into the guys at Snowboarder and I'll never forget the day I was, I was home from school and my mom answered the phone, the phone rang and she said, Hey, Joe, it's for you. And I didn't get a lot of phone calls. And I was like, uh, who is it? And she's like, it's Pat Bridges. And so Pat and he was sitting around with Aaron Draplin and they had gotten a copy of two and eight. It was a, a magazine for misguided youth. Right. Mm. And we had this blood dripping font and all the you know things we were trying to be from a rebellious side. But I, I'd like to say that I had quality printing and did our thing. And um, Pat just did what he does, which was, you know, call somebody and reach into somebody's world and, and mm. ask interesting questions and he created a connection for me. And I remember that day, you know, he talked about the magazine and he was like, this is pretty cool what you're doing. And uh, there was a media militia, media jihad that was written about local areas in the um, snowboarder zine. And I had wanted to write that and I'd wanted to be a part of it. And so, you know, we had a decent conversation. I was, it was like speaking to God for me, you know, and I just remember asking him, I said, well, how? Ha, ha, how do I get to do what you do? And he said, become a snowboard journalist. And I was just like, okay. So I was taking notes. And I remember, you know, that day I, I remember making notes. I had a little binder and I wrote Pat's contact information in like 25 places under Pat, under bridges, under snowboarder, under snowboarding, under doing it just so that I wouldn't lose it. And that connection, I was probably 16 at the time was critical, 16, 17. And I kept in touch with Pat and I kept sending him magazines. I would send him magazine issue after issue, same issues, just making sure that he knew I was serious. I'd write him, I'd write him stories. I'd write him updates about comp contests. And, um, you know, every once in a while he'd write me back and there was an opportunity that came up and he, uh, threw me an assignment when I was 17 and he said, Hey, do you want to write, you know, the local Midwest column? for you know a test and i was like oh my god heck yeah so i i was like i'm in i uh drove down to the cities covered a contest tried to kind of broaden out beyond my um my local scene 
and they printed it. And it was hmm. my first check I ever got. I remember, I think it was Prime Media that owned the company at, a, at the time. And I was like, fucking, I still have it printed and hung up in my bedroom <laughs> at home. It was my first, it was my first check of the job that I knew I, want, I wanted in. That's and so amazing. I, uh, I was a full fanboy of, you know, Snowboarder and Pat, and I wanted anything that I could do. So I interned when I was 18, I interned for him. I came back again a second time. I uh, was there with Ben Fee and, um, you know, Mark McAlera at the time. Uh, it was such a fun crew. And these guys helped me to understand what the scene was like. They read me in, in a way that was both half hazing, half truth, you know, my world of, you in know, the snowboard was, world. That's strange. A hundred percent. I mean, it was, <laughs> I just remember, you know, coming in a kid from nowheresville, Minnesota, to Southern California and being like, I'm at the, I'm at the, I'm, I'm at the place. I made it. I'm at the zone and coming in like bright eyed and bushy tailed. There are so many personalities and so much gruff exterior. And I, I realized I was like, I got a lot, a lot to learn. So I just was like, I'm going to say yes to everything, which meant, you know, a lot of road trips with Pat in his Honda up to mammoth, you know, uh, drinking Red Bulls and hanging out and, and talking and learning and listening and, um, so over time, Pat and I developed a relationship where I continued to freelance for him, uh, continued to freelance through high school and then into college. And when I went to school, I did, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I was on the path of like, maybe I'll be a lawyer. You know, my dad's a lawyer and it seemed like a great job that he had. And, um, that was kind of a path that I had considered until I met Pat and started creating words around snowboarding that I loved. So I went to journalism school in Missoula. So I picked a school that I could go to the mountains um, that was known for writing and magazines and, and went and, and just threw myself into it. And throughout my time in, in, at the University of Montana in Missoula, I continued to write for Snowboarder. I got a freelance job working for ESPN. I was a runner during the X Games and I uh, yeah, did everything that I could possibly do uh, to be a part of this industry. And I remember I had never really gotten a job. Every once in a while, I was like getting a freelance bite here or there. And I was getting ready to graduate. And there was a super park coming up and it was up in Lake Louise. And it coincided with finals for my last semester. And, um, you know, I was going to have to miss my finals. Some wouldn't let me take it early. Some did. And I remember having a conversation uh, with one of my professors and he was not going to let me take this early. I said, listen, I'm going, I got the job that I want and it's, it's, it's writing and it's going to, you know, do this cool article and work with snowboarder. And I said, I'm going, whether I get to take the final earlier or not. So hmm. help, help me, help me make this work. Cause I've been here doing my thing and I convinced them to let me do it. And then boom, I remember, uh, this woman Brody who worked at snowboarder, she picked me up when I flew into uh, Calgary and I was like, I'm, I'm there. It was my first like trip and it was being fully read in working all night, partying all night, working all day. And it was just everything I could have ever imagined. And I didn't end up getting a job after that, but I got an opportunity to experience super park experience, what it was like to be, you know, in the scene with my heroes around me. And I was like, I was committed. So I ended up moving uh, to Idaho after school, continuing to freelance and string as best I could and lived in a single wide trailer in the middle of the woods, right at Tamarack Resort, which had just opened. Um, they were one of the first new resorts in America. They had all this stuff going on. I mean, it was an amazing winter. And hmm. I was still getting a little bit of pressure to go and, uh, you know, become a lawyer. Right? So I took my LSATs and 
seemed like maybe a reasonable backup plan because I didn't have anything yet, but I wasn't done yet. And um, one day I just, you know, had an awesome powder day with some buddies who were at snowmobiling. And I was just like, you know what? I think I'm just done with this law thing. I need to just commit to mm. writing, commit to being a part of this thing. And I, that commitment, I think, got me over the hurdle mentally to be more bold with what I wanted and try to convince the team at Snowboarder that I could be a value partner. And uh, that May, I ended up getting an offer uh, to join the team, which was so cool. And so I moved from, you know, middle of nowhere's Idaho to Southern California and ate turkey sandwiches and cut my teeth in a way that helped me understand who I was going to become foundationally. But kind of working back to the marketing side, a huge part of the thing that makes me me in a brand role is the ability to tell a story and to be connected to storytelling and to listen to you know a brand's problems or a product's opportunity and create create a narrative that helps to connect you know your customer or your audience to this overwhelmingly cool experience so um, it was really fun to know so much of who i am today was anchored in that kid that 15 16 year old kid i still feel like him <laughs> still get motivated different things like different priorities but um, yeah, so that's a bit of the background of kind of what got me going and what got me into the industry before any resume building started, you know, right. a lot of that foundation right. purpose building started. Does your brand need some help in the trade marketing department? Manage your sales tools with regulators, easy to use features, whether it's fixtures or displays, POP custom art or promo products, you can submit single or bulk orders for all your locations within minutes, using a simple, streamlined process. Deliver content, manage your budget and view the market, all from the palm of your hand. Move up to 10 times faster than your competitors and capture all the opportunities that put your brand on top. Visit brandregulator.com for more information. So uh, I got two questions. Do you have, I, I'm going to guarantee you do, within arm's reach somewhere, do you have your first zine somewhere? Oh, do you have I a I'm at the office today. I, I don't have it within arm's don't. reach. Yeah, so I don't have it, it with me. Our, uh, just as a little weird background, our paths are so ridiculously close. Um, how I didn't meet you sooner blows me away. So uh, back a million years ago, right about the time you did, uh, a friend of mine, Jamie Cormack, and Jamie is, and his brother are the founders and managing directors of Herschel, the, the bag company. Mm -hmm. And Jamie and Lyndon are two of my best friends on the planet. They grew up in Calgary. Um, I grew up in, I was a cyclist, uh, but I was a cyclist in the snowboard world. So I was very good friends with Ken Achenbach. I helped start mm -hmm. Derek Height's career. Um, mm -hmm. I've been Amazing like... Guy. Yeah, like John Boyer, who's one of the original, original OG Barfoot pros, is one of my best friends. And he's a, he's a screenwriter in Hollywood. He's got a new movie coming up. Fingers crossed. Uh, it's going to sure. be epic. Um, but, you know, the, your Super Park adventure, I was there. I was, I was there. And I had, uh, like, you and I are right there. Strangely enough, Jamie Cormack founded, way back then, a local zine called Sequence, which I joined in on. And so I was uh, also a partner in a local scene, which I have in my <laughs> credenza just behind or just in front of me. Like we were literally, we were running the exact same path. Minus the fact that I'm too dopey to take the LSATs. 
and <laughs> I can't spell to save my life, uh, which I openly admit. Um, but my creativity comes out in different spaces. Um, so how you and I didn't meet until Oakley literally blows my mind it's because we, we were like, I guarantee you, we were at the exact, we were at probably five or six of the same parties at uh, any given you. period in that time and just walked past each other with a known, <laughs> un, 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 unknowing glance. Like, totally. just, this is just crazy. <laughs> okay. So, um, you're setting the stage and your growth in that period is shocking. Again, I'm not trying to hijack your story. It's identical to mine. All mm -hmm. my knowledge comes from the fact that I'd run uh, 20 little businesses as a kid. Um, I became, I did some writing for trans world, organized some photo shoots with Gallup. You know, I, I, unlike mm -hmm. you, I had actually some very clean access through Ken Hockenbach to like high, high levels mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. like proper photography and stuff. So I was like, trying to get free cat trips to Island Lake and inviting, <laughs> I invited Lyndon Cormack and Derek Height and like, they're just friends of mine. I just wanted free yeah. cat trips. And I was like, I'm going to write a story. Of course I'm going to write a story. Everyone's writing stories. Why the hell can't I? And this was while you were a very young man still, um, cause I'm a little bit older than you, but, um, all of my brand centric knowledge is rooted in all the things that I didn't know then that I stumbled across as I went through this cycle. So you rolled through this of shockingly similar cycle. How do you end up at Red Bull? Yeah, it's, um, it was one of the more interesting lessons that I learned. Um, so I had just, you know, gotten essentially my dream job you know, thinking about my 16 year old self working at Snow Warrior, that was the goal, right? Mm -hmm. Mission accomplished. I am here. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten out and, you know, I was doing articles and living that life. And I loved it. It was fantastic. And one day, you know, Pat and I, we would go to lunch with the team and we were chatting and he brought this up to me. He said, Hey, you know, I think that you, you should consider this job uh, that, that, you know, Red Bull's got. And he knew Adam Moran from the Burton side. And um, Adam was slotted to kind of be the Burton side of traveling with Sean and had spent a bunch of time with him prior. And uh, the transition of, you know, Red Bull signing Sean from Mountain Dew was that catalyst for the role. And Pat knew this gentleman, Josh Kendrick, who was hiring for the job hmm. and he and Josh had, you know, spent some time together apparently. And Josh had mentioned that he was looking for somebody and Pat said, Hey, I think you should consider this. And I said, well, why, why would I consider that? Like, that was ridiculous. Like I'm journalist, man, like Gonzo, let's go. Like I'm, I'm here. This is my dream. I want to be the Jack Kerouac. I want to be the Hemingway of, you know, snowboarding. And he's, yeah. he's like, well, what, what job do you want? I was like, I want your job. He's like, well, that's my job. <laughs> That's my job. Like it was very clear. Pat, Pat was built to be the editor and it was one of the most direct ways for him to say, I don't know if I was a good or bad fit at snowboarder, but I think he saw that I wasn't a long fit for snowboarder and that, um, I maybe had different things that I could do. 
And um, so he really, Pat really encouraged me to um, apply for this role, which I thought was both uh, strange in the time where I was like, am I getting kicked out maybe? Hmm. Or is it really somebody saw something uh, that he thought I would be a good partner for Sean, which I really believe that's the case where I think my personality, who I was, the type of person I was, was a good fit for Sean at the point in time he was at. So Pat, I think, did me a really strong solid of helping me uh, identify that maybe my future was better on the brand side. And it did take me a bit to understand that change because I went from the kind of omni-channel brand agnostic to like, what would it be like to, to, to really drive a story home at one Hyper-focused, yeah. And I, I knew kind of I had to, if I chose that role, I was going to be there for a, lo- like a long time because I wasn't going back to journalism after coming from the brand side. So I uh, made that choice and went after the job wholeheartedly and, and lucky for me, got it. And um, I had a great blend of, you know, kind of both digital uh, digital background from kind of the early e-com blogosphere, you know, building that digital content to be able to help manage a lot of what Red Bull owned with Sean was all of his assets, you know, all of his channels of distribution. We owned his website, we owned his social media, you know, did this insane deal where we owned literally every piece of content that we filmed of him. Hmm. So the ability for us to be able to create content and distribute it via an owned platform and brand it via Hmm. the athlete was like really new. And so I viewed it as a distribution play, right? It was content that we could distribute. So we had our own media company and let's operate it that way. Let's come up with cool concepts and let's go. And so um, I came into the Red Bull world at a really, what I felt was a special time with some really special people um, who were extraordinarily creative and backed big ideas still in in really cool ways. Steve Nielsen, um, Styx, just an awesome guy who, you know, was, a great partner in kind of talking through what the, you know, what did the field need? He also helped really develop a lot of the kind of placements into some of those Rocky Mountain territories of like, where can we build sure. big ideas, which was amazing. Uh, Amy Taylor was, you know, a very strong advocate of bold ideas and unique personalities and um, kind of Red Bull had this energy and this spirit that was still rebellious, grown up, but wanted to continue to push its roots uh, while I was still there. And I got great access to really interesting people to bounce ideas off. And it was the most type A environment. And I, I also knew that I loved that. Like yeah. it, it felt like eat or be eaten. And if we eat you, we digest every part of you. There's nothing left. Like you're gone. Yeah. And so the partners that were there were, you know, work all day, party all night people. And they worked really, really, really hard. And so I learned early on that you could do both, that you could, you know, really burn hard and be productive and enjoy it. And uh, it set the tone for what it, I think I've always looked for, which is an extraordinarily type A environment, high growth drive. I really mm-hmm. love businesses and brands that are looking to ask for the most of both their customers and their employees. So the Red Bull time was just, uh, yeah, really fun. And for for people who don't know, Red Bull's an energy drink company and the, one of the big ones. Two, Sean is Sean White. He's got red hair, pretty good at snowboarding. Um, the time period that you're in is like that 2007 to 2010 sort of sphere. And for people that don't know, Red Bull was not always the Red Bull that we see today. Um, although I'm going to say actually their strongest point in time is probably in that period through to maybe 2015 
where being a Red Bull athlete was like being knighted. It was just, it's a completely different thing. And now there's like, there are a thousand mountain bikers with Red Bull helmets. They're like, it's, it's a thing. Like if you could get a Red Bull hat, which, you know, like I've got a, a crashed ice hat behind me. Like this was a thing. If you could like, gold. Back, yeah, yeah, back in 2007, if you could get this hat, you were like, you were something. In fact, like it was like, you would be like, every little kid on the the thing the literally the thing and now i got one and it's like it holds no it holds well a lot less value and so the ability to get in and sculpt what they were doing at the time because you did you were working with their number one maybe there's maybe there was an f1 guy or something economically maybe at a different sphere but sean being like in North America, for big sure. investment. Yeah, he was sure. the investment. Um, the amount of weight dropped on a guy who's never been in the branded world's hands is incredible. Like that is shocking yeah. that one they let they had to do that. <laughs> it is kind of shocking. It's yeah. dude, it's shocking. <laughs> like there would have been um one, a lineup from LA to Calgary for that job straight people just stacked if it was an open like anyone could apply the lineup would have been insane yeah it was a really interesting time too where um it was shocking but also like i don't think anybody really knew what it could be and it only became something because i would say it was somewhat undefined right Mm. so it was like hey we have this asset like what do we do like (laughs) hey we put it all in the contract the lawyers did all their stuff like we think we could do stuff but, you know, Red Bull had the opportunity, but didn't necessarily have yet the plan. And I think they needed the person. And one of the big challenges with, you know, onboarding a new individual as a personality is that they like, you know, there are contracted dates and then there's the relationship, right? And it's like, if you could build the relationship, then you might be able to do more with the story. And it's like, well, could we be valuable to Sean outside of a sticker on his helmet? And that's how I viewed it was like, what could we do that no other brand could ever do? And I really did think about it that way. And, and my, my approach was, you know, both Sean and Red Bull were somewhat outsiders to that Mm -hmm. space, right? They were, they were, they were not the core and I never felt the core, right? I was never really in the core core. I always felt like I enjoyed competition. I enjoyed winning. I enjoyed those elements of business that didn't necessarily come through in snowboarding, but this was an opportunity with somebody who also liked to win. And so competition-based, you know, stuff was like, how do we succeed? How do we do the thing that, you know, will put this athlete in a place to be the most successful and the brand to have the most exposure? And I think that's where, you know, Red Bull gave me the opportunity to bring really bold and creative ideas. And then Mm -hmm. they actually like put millions of dollars behind it. Like, I, I, there are two, I think, very formative moments during that time where one, you know, was this uh, period of time where we were trying to figure out like what to do as we had kind of done the initial onboarding with Sean and like we went on a great trip and we did a total cool stories, went to Japan. And as we got to know each other as a crew, we were sitting, we had a down day in the Seiko and it was dumping and, you know, obviously maybe a big night the night before, just kind of taking a slow day. And I had asked him, I said, what's the hardest part about, you know, being you? 
Mm. And he's like, oh man, he's like, I can't get hurt ever. He's like, I, look at my schedule, Joe. He's like, I can never have a down day. I can't, I can't learn anything new because if I get hurt, I'm off and then I can't do the thing. And he's like, I got all these tricks in my head and uh, I, I just don't know. I did. I don't know how to learn them because I can't get hurt. I can't afford to get hurt. Mm. Cool. We go off. We, we, we shred some pow. We have some fun. Um, but this idea sticks with me. This idea of like, I can't do the thing that's in my head, but, but I knew there would be a way to do it. And one day, Sean and I were uh, working, right? We were goofing around and we were surfing and uh, just spending time together. And I paddled out to him. And I say, hey, man, I say, if I could make you a foam pit where you could learn all those tricks, would you give me some extra days? Because we had like contracted days, you know, where we could do stuff. He's like, if you could do that, he's like, I'll give you my whole season. I literally paddled in, took a Drove up to uh, Santa Monica, wrote the business plan. Boom! Here's what I want to do. Do this thing. I chatted with uh, Dave Mateus, who mm -hmm. incredible events manager. Uh, dude's incredible. He helped me understand how to put together this kind of proposal to pitch. And um, you know, I was a long-haired, still somewhat rebellious, fun dude. So I have hair down to here. You know. Um, was living that lifestyle still. And I remember I went through the business planning process and had to pitch, you know, our CEO and Amy Taylor and all these people on this multi-million dollar business plan. And it was in this glass building, glass conference room. And it was like the biggest presentation of my life. And I had flown in the night before from Vegas because Sean and I, we were in Vegas often during that period of time. And I <laughs> flew in early, got in, looked like shit, delivered, I think, a really good presentation but no doubt it wasn't something that most businesses would probably say yeah here's three million dollars like go um but red bull had the culture that i think allowed them to take some risks on really interesting ideas and i think they thought well if this kid can do it let's let's see and lo and behold that started a whole um journey mentally through both ups and downs where this idea was amazing and we mm. knew it had staying power. It ended up transforming both a large portion of what kind of what and how athletes, um, you know, train today. Uh, you know, our foam pit, you know, was the first of its kind and it then evolved into airbags and all the other mm -hmm. things. But the idea we came up with was like fill, fill a pit with foam and jump into it. Yeah. And we, we pioneered that whole place and we, we obviously had to do it in a very Red Bull way. So, you know, we put it in the back country in an insane destination, kept it totally top secret. And, um, you know, up until, you know, that period of time, the idea itself uh, was just an idea. Nobody knew if it was going to be worth anything and they had spent a lot of money and it became one of the more difficult points in my career because uh, that was right around 2008, 2009. So the economy had obviously imploded, you know, people, people were losing jobs. There's a housing crisis, what to do, money's tight, budgets, budgets. And I remember, uh, I had effectively spent the $3 million, uh, <laughs> prior to any tricks being learned or things being mm -hmm. done. And there's the, million podcasts on just how we did that whole whole piece but um i remember uh, one of my bosses at red bull uh he kept calling looking for an update and i kept not answering the phone so he sent somebody out there to check on me and they're like go see what joe's doing and all he's doing is spending money we have no updates and uh i'll just i'll never forget the two guys came out and 
uh, Dave Mateus was one of them. And uh, he's like, this is insane. He literally calls, he's like, I'm staying. <laughs> this project's the one. <laughs> so we adopted him. And we, we built this amazing tribe of people who were like, we've really got something special here. And um, when, I, when, we, when we closed kind of all of this stuff, it was still really unknown whether or not, um, whether or not this whole thing was going to work and it was going to be worth the payoff. And I got back and I, I went from like a kid who people were willing to bet on to like the guy who spent all the money or a lot of money and there were no results yet. And so I remember I, uh, I got banished by um, my d director, not Josh Kendrick in the business. And he, uh, he essentially, when I came home from about 110 days straight on the road, he was like, you're in big trouble. <laughs> I've never been yelled at like I've been yelled at by this person. And he's like, you're in deep shit. And he's like, you won't be working here. And I remember the tail between my legs because I didn't know if we had gotten it. You know, I didn't know if Sean was going to win. I knew that we had done something special, but, you know, we hadn't cut the films. We hadn't seen anything. We hadn't done any of the work yet. So it was this trust moment during the summer leading up to the next qualification in the Olympics ultimately. And... Um, I thought I was going to get fired because I'd overspent the budget. <clears throat> there was nothing to prove. And um, I knew I was going to get fired or I thought I knew when they, they essentially transitioned me and said, by the way, like, sure, you're managing snow stuff. You know, that's fine. But like, we need you to manage the parkour guys. And that's not a dig on the parkour guys. But like, I was in, I, I remember I've, I got flown out to a trip and I was like, this is it. Like, I lost it. I lost my chance. But I did something with um, the guys in the media house before, and Scotty Bradfield uh, was an awesome, awesome advocate of me and creative projects. And he'd been there a long time. I don't know if you know Scotty at all, but exceptional gentleman. He ran kind of the media house operations for uh, Red Bull North America, and he took some great bets on great, great stories being told. <clears throat> and I had effectively been cut off, couldn't spend any money. They wouldn't let me do anything. And... Um, I remember we were cutting this trailer and we were trying to use a bunch of free music and it sounded horrible and uh, come up with this really cool edit. And we use, I think it was like the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack, like this big, heavy orchestral, like overture for the teaser. And I was like, that's it. Like, let's, let, let's do it. I, I went into Scotty's uh, office and Claude Merkel was the producer on it. And we were like, we need five grand for this song. And it'll 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 work. Like you do it, sign it. Now he's he's like, I got you guys. Like, don't worry about it. Just get the teaser done and drop it. And um, you know, we did that, and then the teaser dropped, and it was the first video to do over a million views for Red Bull North America. It hit like nobody's business. It exploded, mm. and um, I knew from that moment that it was going to change. And I went from pretty much hiding under the desk to being asked to open up one of our sales meetings. Uh, for the team in the theater to premiere the, you know, the trailer. And it, it became something that people obviously like bet on and then rode the coattails on, which was awesome. And that was the goal, right? We did limited edition cans. We did in-game, you know, partnerships with Target and Ubisoft and all this stuff. It went, but there, there was like a bajillion times where it was going to fail. And I remember a moment where we had, um, we were on the ground and I was young, right? 22 at the time, 22, 23. And um, I had just spent a ton of money, most of the budget, and it had snowed. 
created an avalanche, you know, the half pipe was covered up, filming was supposed to happen, the whole thing was going to fail. And uh, I was just kind of having a a mental breakdown. <laughs> I was laying on the ground in this house and I had just kind of given everything what I thought was to this project. And this guy, Sean Aaron, who is a freelance filmer, uh, he shot most of the work that I've done um, during that time. And he's an awesome dude, great friend. And uh, he walked in, he's like, man, don't worry. He's like, we'll, we'll do it. And he just gave me his hand, picked me up and said, let's just get back out and we'll jump on a sled and we'll go do what we can. And, um, it was really cool to see how close knit each creative partner was to the overall project. And I think that's what I found so inspiring about being a marketer is that you, you really do bring, you can bring the best people together who will help you as a business succeed. If you find those right people who have that same desire. So I've always gravitated towards a pretty tight knit crew of people who really want to tell great story, who are willing to go the distance, who have that empathy towards the creative process to risk and failure and uh, I think that was a really critical kind of juncture for me being able to then use that vehicle, which was the Red Bull time, my time with Sean, the projects, those ideas to go and try some business stuff, you know, um, and that gave me that foundation to feel more confident. From brand development to simple market executions, 54 Blue helps brands of all sizes grow with sustainability in mind. Their full-stack range of services include print, fabrication, design, web, interactive, content marketing, brand consulting, creative strategy, and more. Join some of the world's largest brands and lean on 54Blue for your next go-to-market. Visit 54Blue.com for more information. That's a, it's interesting. The one, you set the stage at Red Bull for Felix going into a balloon and going into space. <laughs> and like, so everybody that has done something absolutely stupid at Red Bull that ends up working owes you a debt. So I hope they send you a bottle of champagne after every dumb thing that they spend <laughs> many, many millions of dollars on. Um, the, the interesting thing is, is it's, it was a bit of a loaded question and or not even a question, but it's a loaded statement when I said, you know, it was a massive risk for Red Bull to take a gamble on you. Mm. And uh, I say that at the time tongue in cheek, because the reality is, and for young listeners out there that want to be a sports marketing person, like people would kill for that job, kill. Like there's is like literally someone would murder someone. To do that. <laughs> um, but what most people don't get is the level of authenticity that you need to be able to actually do it. You can't be, a, you, you need to recognize that Sean is an important person and that he's got this economic value, but you can't, you have to go in and treat him with auth, auth, authenticity. You have to be so mm -hmm. authentic. You have to be able to understand that he can't walk out in public and not get recognized and that there's issues with that. You can't bring that back and continue it. You need to understand that he's just a dude. Yeah. He's a super athlete, but what Red Bull does really well is these are humans. They're, they're humans Absolutely. before they're athletes. And most people lose real track of that. And, um, unless you're in the sports entertainment business, which is effectively what sports marketing and most any sport where you're getting paid money, you're an entertainer. Sean White's an entertainer. He's a snowboarder, but he's an entertainer. Unless 
people realize that um, we have, like that's the breakdown, first breakdown. Mm-hmm. They're entertainers. They have to be really good. Their craft isn't singing. It isn't acting. It isn't signing business deals. It's flying around on a snowboard, but yet it still needs to be treated as seriously as it is. And of course, the outside veneer of this is hanging in Vegas, uh, going to amazing shows, uh, girls all around. Like this is the lifestyle component of this is insane, but it's not really what it is. It, it goes Absolutely. so it goes so much past that. Most of these things are done not at Nobu. Uh, these deals they're not <laughs> yeah. cut there. They're cut in the break. They're cut in uh, in on the chairlift. In that, in all like, that other stuff was just the noise around the lifestyle, but then the, that core that you talk about, and also for when we're thinking about like what does it take, and you think about like from a marketing perspective, you had to figure out like what to do. Like you couldn't just have the job. <laughs> like that job, that job wasn't just a job. It was like you could do it as a job and do the deal and make sure he had a can in his hand. But how lame is that? Right. Like that's a way yeah. to kind of break through. And this is what I've pushed for a lot of different businesses. And also people who work with me is like, let's go have some big ideas. Mm. Like, let's go really have some big ideas. Like let's push the envelope. Let's understand what is the way to push the envelope to transform and to change. And I think one of the things that I am very comfortable with and have had to become is that like, when you push the envelope, you sometimes break it or you fail at it. And mm-hmm. it's just such a, once that, crack reforms you're you're a lot stronger and you understand where it broke the first time so that you don't break it the next time and you can kind of keep working your risk tolerance up the kind of marketing and brand bet because ultimately it's really challenging to be a marketer because you spend the money but you also know that it will drive revenue and brand awareness and all those things will happen but you're the first one through the door you're the first one through the door and you have to be confident in your plan or your idea and that it's anchored in something other than like you said, the kind of noise around the edges. Yeah. And there's a, there's like, I don't know, maybe I'm frustrated with wokeism and a few other things, but going on right now, but I'm seeing like beer company after beer company failing, trying to pretend to be something that they're not. And I look at it and I'm just like, you can smell it a million miles away. There was someone who made an executive decision to do something that doesn't relate to the brand. It doesn't, it might work for some of their consumers, but it's not who they are. And they're trying to drive these weird agendas and you'll find brands do this. But soon as like, soon as you deviate from authenticity, you're screwed. It doesn't matter. It might be successful once it's, there's these things can happen. They, they do. However, it's not a repeatable thing. It morphs the brand into something that is uh, a Frankenstein version of what it should be and its core consumers are gone totally and, and, and i think one of the things that's interesting with that statement like on authenticity my world was like i i've had to view authenticity through the lens of red bull red bull sean competition versus the lens of authenticity to maybe the core as i had known the snowboard industry Right. So that there, that was an interesting push and pull around what mm. is authentic. Right. Was was it authentic to create something that put a competitive advantage so distinctly in one person's court? Well, yes, if I were kind of doing my job and pushing Red Bull forward. But if I were to look at it from 
you know, maybe some of the industry perspective, there was this true, you know, anger around what that also created the sense of, well, you know, how, that's a crazy competitive advantage for one person versus the other. So it was interesting for me as a person to try to kind of go back and forth between like, was I authentic to my mission in the brand? Yes. Was I maybe inauthentic to kind of general feel of the industry? Potentially. Yes. Too, you know, creating that competitive culture and, um, it is, it is always hard to figure out what your true north is, but if you can do enough work, then you can be honest with yourself. Like, okay, I'm, I'm good with where we end up, no matter who likes or doesn't like it. Yeah, and authenticity, one, is a sliding scale, and it's highly perspective-based. Um, coming from where you were as a journalism at Snowboard, you know, a journalist at Snowboarder, um, Sean wasn't authentic already. He just wasn't. In, in yeah. the eyes of every core snowboarder, Sean had already passed that. He was mm -hmm. like, a, you know, on the way to either being a target athlete or, you know, like it just, he wasn't there. Although I am going to guarantee when you got to know Sean correctly, you found out that he's probably, and I don't know him, but I'm Absolutely. assuming he's hyper authentic to like, yeah, yeah, to a point that is uh, laughable that if you looked back to your old consideration of what he was, you probably look back and go, I had it wrong. Yeah. And, and I mean, he, he was great. And I thought Pat always did a good job of putting Sean's competitive nature in context, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think there was an Olympic issue where they did a profile on him and, you know, Pat got Sean in words, you know, I, I got Sean in actions with him mm -hmm. and being able to find that we could be an industry that you know has multiple camps, you know, and I think that that's great. And it was just, um, it was trailblazing in a cool way, you know, to try to consider where we ended up and we we're all kind of growing through it. Like you said, in the beginning, it's like, well, we were really just growing up mm. in all of this stuff too, which was pretty cool to understand who do we really want to be? Who does he want to be? Um, so yeah, it was such a fun time to be a part of, you know, that transformation within an industry. Yeah. Amazing. So you, you have a stint and we won't dwell on Oakley. We've talked about Oakley a million times on <laughs> my podcast because I've had Scott Bowers, who you would yeah, I have dude. worked for, yep. um, Brian Takumi and a few other people. Great, uh, great, great guys, amazing brand. Uh, the core of what Oakley was and with Takumi there is, and I say that and somewhere there's a bunch of people cringing because Luxottica, which is a behemoth, owns it. But I stand by that uh, Oakley's heart and soul still exists in a guy named Brian Takumi. And thankfully so. Um, but so you had a stint there in your sports marketing doing a similar-esque job in that position. But then it kind of changes. You, yeah. you move into a business standpoint. And this is where it's in, under interesting to me because the trading authenticity in a boardroom at like C-suite level meetings is a different thing where it's like, you know, they sales and authenticity aren't growing. They're, they're not exactly in parallel. They, they're mm -hmm. just not, they sh should be if you consider everything uh, from the root of brand which is how I consider everything, they should be going up at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. That is not the reality in a lot of yeah. companies. And you would know this already that sales and numbers bend authenticity to what it needs to be to suit growth. 
Mm. And that becomes um, an Achilles heel for a lot of brands. Um, and it becomes veneerish, which mm. I find like, dude, there's like, you don't have to go far. I've said it before. Just look at the surf industry and the mm. disaster that happened there. They were propping up sales, hiding inventory, uh, still buying beach houses to hold athletes in. Like it was just like, it was so broken because authenticity got trumped by year over year number. Hmm. And so now you've transitioned um, as an expert in putting authenticity forward for the brand to lever to then being the guy who levers that. Hmm. And, and that's really well said. You know, what's interesting, what the, the catalyst for that career shift was one that was like, it, it was more like an aha moment. I, I was chatting with somebody uh, at Oakley and, uh, you know, I'd come to kind of do the same thing at Red Bull did for Oakley, right? Expand the relationship and do all that stuff. And this person, no right or wrong, just speaking their truth was like, Hey man, like you're only getting to do what you do because you're next to him. Like you're next to Sean, he's famous. Therefore you are kind of riding his coattails. And we were having this conversation. It was a little heated. And I was, I didn't defend it. I was just like, hmm, I guess I can't defend it because Sean is like a global superstar. Maybe I am, you know, only drafting off of those things. Maybe I didn't contribute at the level that I had thought. So I do a little self-reflection and I go, you know what? Probably run my time next to this person. Can I do it myself? Can I do it without him? Can I prove this person wrong? Can I... Can I go and, and be distant from this individual who was a catalyst for much much of you know the opportunity, but was he the sole driver? And I needed to know for myself. So that was what made me make the choice to change careers. And Zeal was a startup. So Maui Jim had just purchased Zeal Optics, which was this mm -hmm. terrible brand. And I remember somebody asked me, they're like, why would you go to Zeal Optics after like, ugh, like what a terrible brand. And I was like, isn't it? Worst brand I'd ever seen. <laughs> and I was like, if I can change this thing into something cool, then that'll be my calling card. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted something to prove to myself that I had the, the chops to be, be able to do it. And I remember I showed up, I had a laptop and a logo and they were like, uh, do your thing, like build your thing. And uh, there was a realization that you were no longer at a cool company, right? You were at a business that nobody knew about that was owned by a very cool company, but mm. that doesn't make Zeal cool. Right? It was like, how do, you, how do you go and build this thing? So I learned a lot about product, product development, marketing, sales teams, building stuff. What is it going to take? How scrappy you need to be with your dollars? You know, I used to fly business class and it was like, oh, my God, we're definitely driving. <laughs> like you, you got so comfy at these big companies that scrappy startup felt um, it felt like a jarring shake, but a really positive move. And again, more authentic to myself. Like, can I build? And that became, you know, an incredibly cool part of um, what I learned about being a marketer, got me into those boardroom conversations. I learned how to turn dollars around based on plans, not on projects, mm. right? So like I opened up the wallet at Red Bull based on a cool idea that didn't have to sell stuff, but it sold, ultimately it sold a lot of stuff. Zeal and then my kind of future was really based on how do I make sure that these things drive sales and controlling more directly that. And 
I kind of always react to kind of the, the traditional way. And it, I think it's kind of changing, but the traditional way, many, many board level conversations go around marketing, which is like make the pictures pretty, you know? And in reality, I think there's a whole new respect for how brand represents the visual identity of the thing, the way that the product is communicated to the consumer, the loyalty that's there. And so I think over the last decade, there's this, there's been this huge shift in realization that sales is a byproduct of a really strong story and a really strong connection to the customer. And ultimately you have to have great sales leadership to be able to succeed, sure. But without the brand, the best sales leadership in the world is not gonna succeed. You know, without that guidance that can help those products connect to the right customers, you probably won't gain the traction that you could or should in the market. So, I, you know, I learned a ton around how different people viewed what was my craft, right? Mm. From a CFO who didn't give two shits around creative to a president who loves it, right? And he's like, I want to just tell story to somebody who loves product. It's like, okay, if brand is the kind of in between of all of these connecting points, how do we, you know, positively bring the best and elevate that story to the customer? And I think that's helped me because I've had really fun dynamic roles in many different departments under from digital to customer service, to product development, to engineering sales, like all of it snaps together to like, what do we do? And I think that's where that kind of go to market function of brand, helping everybody get in line being the first out the door is an important thing for, you know, leaders in marketing to realize that that is our job. You know, our job is to make sure that we're in the, in the front, you know, waving the flag, staking the claim, proving that we're there with you and everybody else department is going to go do their thing if they feel that common purpose and mission. We're not here for the high rollers, snooty wine critics, or long-haul collectors, but we do think it's about time wine sellers turned into swoon-worthy works of art. Our experienced designers will bring your dream wine cellar to life, fitting any sized space and aesthetic requirements in your home. Our craftsmen carefully hand-build your cellar to give you a wine storage space that really feels like you. Visit themoderncellar.com for more information. So it's it's interesting because you're again, you and I are in an alignment that I don't believe we knew we were. I, I wrote an article for Entrepreneur Magazine not long mm -hmm. ago where I, my analogy, and I thankfully have amazing people. I ran this by Pierre Martin, uh, who's mm -hmm. an amazing brand guy. I ran it through Bows, and Scott is like an awesome. idol to me. Um, but it, basically, I, I look at brand um, and how go-to-market works like a bullwhip. So in the center of a whip, you've got the, you have this big massive handle and then you've got this core that runs all the way through and then you have all this braiding that intertwines all the way around. And I'll put a link to this article in the uh, notes. But in the end, um, brand sits at the core of everything. Um, you need a good brand steward holding the whip. And as the whip gets cracked in the correct direction, things amplify um, and everything speeds up as it goes down. Um, and the strands of the brand are the functional groups. They're all the different, they're product, they're finance, they're all the different functional groups of marketing, digital, uh, event, uh, brick and mortar, trade marketing, all of those. And they all have to support and they all intertwine. And if brands continue to have massive silos, that never happens. You end up with these super dysfunctional go-to-markets where things break. 
Um, and then at the end of this, uh, and I find this amazing. I'm a whip guy for what I love knives and whips, <laughs> Indiana Jones, I, I endlessly amazed. There's a sonic boom, by the way, the whip is the very first structure known to man to break the sound barrier at the end that crack is a sonic boom. And then it took humans about 2000 years to do it mechanically, to do it with jet engines and these things or guns, weapons to be able to break the sound barrier. So, um, and then you get back all these echoes from the market, you hear it back and you, you need to listen to all these echoes of what's coming back to be able to go, go through your go to market cycle again. And this is really a thing. Um, and brand being at the core, I, I've got a, one of the reasons I started writing this, one of my very, very good friends is the CMO of this company called authentic brands group. And they go around and they buy uh, brands that are have, or are in distress. That is their direct purpose. So they, in fact, by the way, own the surf industry. Now they just finished buying board riders. Mm -hmm. They already own Volcom, which means they own Volcom, Billabong, Quicksilver, Roxy and uh, whatever the other small brands. brands, they literally own the surf industry um, because it imploded and they could go in and take it over and then start bringing it back. And, you know, brands never die. And the reason I started looking at this is the value that exists in brand, the name Billabong, the name Quicksilver, whatever it may be, that's where the value is. It's not on any given product. It's not on any given uh, year, although the, the year's worth of sales is exceedingly important, but the value is the name, owning mm -hmm. the brand identity. And that's where all of the market equity is stored, is right at brand. And it needs to be cherished and it needs to be evolved and it needs to be loved. And it's an organism all onto its own mm -hmm. that um, needs care in the marketplace sure. and, and and to me that's like when i again going through your list of things you're staging these you might come in and something needs correction or to be set on the right path but what you're doing is setting it on the right path not for any given product but for the brand and that's a real different mentality it's like there are exceptions iphone mm -hmm. fairly big exception redefined a company that was maybe struggling a tiny bit in the background. However, that is also it fundamentally iPhone just fed the brand, like mm -hmm. it just became Apple. And mm -hmm. so when for young marketers out there, always think about brand. If you don't think about brand at the core of every decision you're making, you are fucking up. Yes. Yeah. And, and like brand story. is not, it's not, it's not advertising. Brand is not yeah, advertising. Yeah. Brand is how you act. And it's how you act as a leader of people and departments and consider challenges. It's what you listen to. And I think oftentimes brand gets used as like, you know, it, it's true. The core is in how the consumer views the logo, but the net effect of whether that love of the customer is full or empty in the tank of the logo 100%. comes down to the actions every single day that we take. And I think you know it's almost surprising how few market leaders, marketing leaders, actually view brand as their responsibility outside of kind of the basics. You know, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a dig deep kind of kind of guy. Like I like to be in the details, 
uh, to make sure that we know what's happening mm -hmm. with the brand as best we can. And I think it's really interesting to see many different structures of how businesses operate, but I, I found it exceedingly rare where there are those marketing leaders really truly connected to what they're trying to do versus what their quote unquote teams are doing and you know the bigness that's operated around it. And I think that the customer requires like you said, a lot of love and a lot of awareness that we hear them and a lot of in-market time. And brand is a, it's, it's, it's a very, it's almost like an executive coach, you know, or a therapist. It's there to listen to the customer's problems and then to adapt solutions over time together without losing their, its own way. And um, I found it highly beneficial to consider that style of an approach because it helps me in times of stress when sales are low. It's like, what are the actions or reactions? It's like, hold on, let, let, let's have a real conversation at the brand level. What are the impacts? What are we trying to cause? What's the effect? You know, how do we want to do this? There's no silver bullet to fixing a problem. Most often there's a lot of, can we get everybody from the go-to-market process aligned behind what we think this solution is? And if yes, then most likely we'll succeed. If no, then we'll probably fracture and we won't succeed. So you know, connecting those basic elements is, I think, as critical as the world's greatest creative element right. um, or greatest strategy. Creative is an interesting thing when I and, you know, I sat down with Takumi at Oakley. Uh, Brian is the creative guy. He feeds mm -hmm. the brand uh, through the love and care of from a creative direction. Um, There's so many ways to navigate and get there. But in the end, um, not focusing on anything other than brand health as, as an organization, as your number one KPI, what's our brand health and you know, what's our appearance like in the market that makes a brand bulletproof. Could Oakley, any other company other than Nike and Oakley, waded through the waters of fucking Lance's issues. And I, I know Lance, I like Lance enough, and it, it's it's not me dogging on Lance. But these companies were getting dragged down to the bottom of the ocean by association. Mm -hmm. And could they have done that without real insane brand health? My guess is they would have had a huge problem. If that was Zeal Optics, Zeal Optics would have disappeared off this <laughs> planet at that point. 100%. Even Maui Jim at that time, which was reasonably yeah. strong, no chance they would have been done because of, yeah. you know, they just don't hold the brand equity in the overall marketplace. The brand isn't, doesn't hold that health. Yeah. And so I think that it's in everyone's best interest to grow the brand health. And to be honest, net long-term, it's the only thing worth value. Yeah. And it's it how is. businesses are being bought and sold now. Yeah. It's like, sure, you have to have a healthy PL, but if you have an incredible customer file and you have mm -hmm. incredible customer engagement, it's an opportunity to monetize, you know, that at, at greater profitability. And I think that's being realized by financing, right? Mm -hmm. More so than ever, that brands are not just pretty pictures. They are they're customers who are willing to spend more for things they love and they'll spend more over time. So I think that's been a really nice shift in how the the finance arm and the cash side of any business is starting to respect and there's mutual respect there because i think marketing and brand has always had to respect finance because we need 
the vehicle of cash to be able to go and talk to the customers at some level. So mm-hmm. I think that that partnership has gotten a lot more unique, a lot more fun, a lot more con- less contentious than it was in the past. So there's, you know, there's mutually assured profitability if we can all work together and ultimately, you know, we can win if the customer wins, which I think is a super cool moment. Yeah. It's awesome. I, I think um, this is a really cool transition. You've worked all the way through some amazing brands. Where you are now, you're VP of marketing at Benchmade. You're in a yeah. different, and for most people, they would struggle going from, you know, sugary, <laughs> rocket water that you pour down your throat and mix with vodka sometimes <laughs> to knives through yeah. a whole bunch of other companies. N- not to say that product is product, but the reason you've been able to do that is because of your awareness of brand. And so now you're at Benchmade. Um, are there, <sighs> explain a little bit about what Benchmade is to you now your opportunities yeah. at Benchmade, things that you can bring from Red Bull, Oakley, um, fall, you know, launching Fall Raven basically into North America, which, by the way, great success, I think, from what I've seen, the brand awareness is amazing. So that's you. And I spoke to you when you were doing that a couple of times, and it's like, like my head was exploding. I was like, that's amazing. Like, I was very aware of the brand, mm-hmm. uh, but obviously it just didn't really exist in our territories. So landing at Benchmade, um, to me, sooner or later, you're going to be a a CGO, Chief Growth Officer, which umbrellas for people that don't know, sort of umbrellas over sales and marketing and uh, holds the handle of the whip in go-to-market so that brand is taken care of, net goals of finance are taken care of, um, but you get to then bridge when marketing is being a dick to sales or sales is being a dick to marketing, which ooh, shocking. It's a thing that exists out there. Um, you get to step in or the CGO gets to step in at that point and go, no, 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 guys, let's play nice. This is all like we're, we're developing brand. Let's, let's work not, together. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's all join hands. This is fantastic. Um, that's where you're going to land and you're already doing that. You've done that in a bunch of different spots. Anyone who has co VP roles of sales and marketing. That's what you're doing is you're CGO in that product. And it's just not really titled correctly. Um, so a bench made, where are you guys at? What are you doing? Do you have anything super interesting? What's the health? Uh, Maya, yeah. I'd love to know the health of the brand. What's going on? Yeah. I mean, Benchmade for, for, for those that don't know, Benchmade's a story that, um, you need to listen to and 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 it's one of those really incredible american like true american stories where you think about um the why and i'll rewind for a bit the why is really interesting i got recruited into the role and benjamin was looking for a vp of marketing and uh you know i got a call from a recruiter and they're like hey you know it's this knife company it's in the pacific northwest and now, I was an outdoors guy. I didn't know about the brand. Um, I, you know, I didn't grow up with Benchmates. And so I was like, yeah, you know, uh, knife company, you know. Uh. I was like, I told the recruiter, I was like, I'm not really interested in just working, you know, for some knife company that's just a bunch <laughs> of Yahoo hillbillies, you know, making sharp, pointy objects. I was like, I'm a culture guy. I was like, I'm a, I'm a brand guy. 
And she's like, you have to speak to John Diasis, the CEO. Mm. I said, okay, well, let me, let me have a chat. And um, this is the best conversation that I've, I've had uh, in a very long time. And John is the son of uh, the founder. His dad and mom founded the business. And um, the story that he told me and the way that he introduced the why to Benchmade was so compelling. I left the conversation kind of only asking him one question was like, why does no one know this? Hmm. Why does no one I knew know it, this? Joe. I knew right? it. <laughs> but that that question that I left with, you know, a lot of people um, had also, I think, asked him, like, how he was traveling a lot, validating that his brand had amazing staying power for those that understood it, but didn't necessarily know how to go and meet people. And so I got very intrigued as I met the different groups, how diverse the people were here, you know, the types of personalities. I love manufacturing. So uh, Benchmade is uh, 100% American-made knives. And so our factory, where I'm at today, Oregon City, um, we have this beautiful campus, state-of-the-art innovation that we have kind of developed over the last 30-plus years from made-on-a-bench handcraft to, you know, really the industry leader in um, production craftsmanship and being able to help tell that that story to the customer was what I wanted, which was, you know, there was a signal to my past. I loved being from a mining town. You know, I loved the understanding of like, what is it like to actually be in work? And, you know, we run six days a week, 24 hours a day. So you can pop by the office at any point in time and somebody's working on something, building knives, making products. And that helped me understand that there was way more to talk about than just you know, a product story. And John's vision, as he saw it was, he's like, there's so many great things about who we are, but we don't know what they are. We need somebody to help form it into, um, you know, something that we can all follow. So that was why I joined was to create the brand led approach for us to be able to unify the different departments to ultimately act with the customer in mind, and not only validate that those that know, know, but that there are many more people who need to know. So how do we introduce ourselves? And, you know, if you've ever spent time in the Pacific Northwest, it's surprisingly like the Midwest. Um, it's a relatively um, closed group of businesses that are far from many of the economic epicenters of America. It's less culturally diverse than many of those areas. And so understanding how to go and impact those areas is daunting. And they didn't have a strong, uh, you know, marketing leadership team prior. They, they, they didn't have a real, you know, intentional way that they wanted to go out and build that business. And they really needed to um, say, yes, we want it. And then with that, yes, I said, now I'll help you build the process with which everybody gets to be a part of how this brand becomes more impactful to more customers who look different than our core customers, but have those same values. Mm. And so that was um, an exciting way to kind of enter into a total change oriented moment. So, um, you know, the, the, the team that I, I inherited when I joined looks very different today than it did in the past. And our ability to move this forward um, required a commitment from leadership side, but also from the business to go and really go through this change period. And there had been huge impacts. It was COVID. Uh, we were remote. I was the first remote hired employee in the history of the company. Uh, you know, they, they said yes to somebody like me. I was living in Minnesota and uh, I immediately said, yes, boom, I'm moving. But, you know, the whole world was shut down. 
I was trying to get to know what this business was all about. John's dad had passed away just a few months prior. So there's a you know, family transition as well as a cultural transition to the prior ownership, as well as a strong soul of who um, had really been uh, that you know, foundation of what a Benchmade was built off of. So in partnership with myself and John, we really talked about what was his vision for how he wanted to lead you know, this business and, and hearing from him who's, you know, grown up in the business, how he both saw evolution of his father and, and mother's um, plans, but also where to lay those elements and groundwork foundationally into the culture was what was missing. So yeah, it has been uh, an exciting ride with, filled with a lot of change. And oftentimes, you know, for those marketers out there, you know, people talk about team, you know, what it's like to lead teams. And one of the big things I can tell you is I hope you always look at your team and go, do I, do I, do I need to have a big team? Is the goal for me to have lots of people around me working for me? Or is the goal to like figure out how to get communication to move through the business, get to the customer and know how to impact your end customer? And so you know, I took a team and reduced it by you know a pretty significant percentage and then began to add on other elements of departments. So end to end you know, kind of customer relationship lives with me in from product ideation to marketing, to go to market, to brand operations, to customer experience and sell through support. I am now able to view whether or not the hmm. thing we, you know, ideated is actually loved or hated. And then how we activate on it from a life sharp guarantee. That's, that's one of those really interesting and unique end to end commitments that I've never had my arms fully around at any single business, but I do today. And I'm learning so much about how important each individual link in the chain is to communicating value to the customer. Cause we are a, a, you know, a premium product, you know, there are many knives cheaper than a Benchmade, but there are very few that have the type of service, the type of uh, loyalty, as well as the, the service guarantee that we back it with. So, that has pre presented a lot of interesting data points for me to consider as I learned the business over the last couple of years. And I think today, you know, we've really come into our own as having a, a strong go-to-market process that is led by the brand saying why we want to go there, asks our culture internally, these 500 amazing employees to get on board with where we want to go, to go and create these amazing products to then define you know, who we're going to be in the marketplace and, and we want to shake things up. And so we've been more bold as brand has taken on product here, pushing new, innovative, challenging products into the market because we knew we could communicate it in a way that we hadn't in the past. So we've been able to effectively take more risk while creating more revenue and exciting our customers in a really cool way. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a ton of fun and, um, we're getting ready to kind of, you know, culminate a, a three-year plan, uh, here at the end of the month, which is a full digital transition of all of our web properties, new website, new communication tools, new content. We've really created a media powerhouse that creates internal content. We don't rely on agencies like we used to when I joined, you know, we've built that internal team dynamic to be able to go out and find those trusted partners. And I think that's helped us remain authentic in, in to our earlier conversation. Like I needed to know that while I'm not the you know, 
the, the, the number one knife knowledge base in the world. I know some of those people exist here and in mm. our community. So how do we adopt that knowledge and then go create amazing content that inspires both the new customer and the existing loyalist? And um, that's been helpful for me, you know, uh, to have to, to learn different things in different industries. I think it's, yeah, I, I, to me, you stumbled ass over tea kettle into a super authentic brand. And I, I know this because I'm a fan of the brand. For sure. And when I saw that you popped up there, I was like, oh, that's so awesome. I was so, one, I was psyched for you and I was psyched for them. Um, to me, it looks like, uh, and for people who don't know sort of the cycles of business, but to me, this looks like a family business of one variety or another that's been historically owned over a generation or two that was built on amazing product. And the only reason that the brand survived is that it was kept in the hands of very few people to, pardon my language, fuck up. Mm -hmm. And I, I, from what I'm hearing, it kind of sounds like that's reasonably Absolutely. accurate. And that's one way. And there's tons of stories like that out in the world where you've got these amazing small cottage based businesses that bloom into something that is way bigger than they probably ever expected it to be on inception. Mm -hmm. They stayed the course, they built product based on their um, strict standards and ethics about what the consumer should be presented as a product, whether it's a sweater, uh, a knife, uh, a muffin, doesn't matter, literally doesn't matter. It just, but you stay that course on what it is without really a whole bunch of thought to growth because they're already getting growth beyond what they probably expected. And they're like, wow, we're somehow we're the, you know, we thought we were, but we're actually really good at this and we're great at making really great knives. So you know what, everyone keep making great knives and not every company does that. Lots of companies get lost really quickly in the weeds. Um, and thankfully, uh, and I don't know the people personally, they didn't, they kept it tight, kept it moving on, um, and kept their product, uh, to the point where it makes sense. Now, of course, does it make sense? Like Benchmade, in my opinion, is in a perfect position for culinary. Um, mm -hmm. There is no, not that I, I'm super aware of. I'm a, uh, when I cook and I love to cook, I've got a set of old Hinkles that I've kept, which I would happily replace with uh, <laughs> a couple pieces out of your culinary line for my non-Japanese Japanese knife set. And for people that don't understand, they're fairly different knives, the way they're sharpened, the way they're managed and stuff. They're different products for different things. Um, but for me, there's a really solid spot where you guys could root, like crush it. Not everyone wants a super thin, ultra delicate Japanese blade. It's they're somewhat impractical and you have the ability of producing a way more practical because you don't have to build it the Japanese way necessarily. You can hybrid it and still be super authentic to what you guys are. So, uh, I love that. Um, I think that's, um, you know, you guys have so many things that you can do. It's and like I think actually one of the amazing. most, it, it, it truly is. And I think that's one of the, it's a blessing and a curse to own your own manufacturing. Mm. Cause you know, so often in, in, in my career, it was like, you come up with an idea, you like somebody goes to China. So mm. then, then you have your shipment and it just shows up. Well, that's different when you build 
specific purpose-built product and then you're like, oh, you want to do a specific new purpose-built product. Well, it takes a whole different line or different machines and you got to figure out how to create so much why because then there's a huge amount of investment for a long period of time because we're both the factory and the brand. And looking at those two things is net new in a to- well, it's a totally different way and a totally different relationship to making the product because being able to point out a product opportunity, understand the financial cost of marketing said thing that comes from the factory, but then look all the way down the line. I was like, okay, what is it going to take for us to invest all of these factory resources towards mm. this product? How long are we talking about? What is the return? And so as product has sat at brand, uh, we've, we've really been able to refine how we're bringing the, those ideas, market opportunities into a conversation, you know, at the executive and board level that allows brands to articulate both the financial value, the brand value, the customer value of net new launches and future potential uh, market extensions, because we see huge opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. And your, your read on Benchmade is spot on. And, um, you know, the stewardship of who we are today, but also how we go and grow our base. I think that that's where we are the only knife company that really wants to and can go out and grow a massive base uh, based on both what you're identifying, you know, the cutlery space where many people cut, but also, you know, understanding how to use, you know, a pocket knife and really Mm. bring that mentality of education. And, um, you know, I love, I love marketing sharp pointy objects to make sure that people feel comfortable with them. Right. And Mm. that's a relationship that oftentimes happens in person, Mm. right? You get comfortable with something, uh, when you, when you get to touch it and feel it. But over the last few years, it's been all virtual and digital. And how do we educate customers, go bring in net new customers. And um, that's what's been fun about knowing this business a little bit more intimately, as I say, like got in, you know, I'll get about six months into the business. I started to understand where really are those things and how are we going to say yes to the opportunity and do it versus we have many ideas that we think are valuable the question was, how do we land them and get them done? Right? Mm-hmm. How do we land them and get them funded? And I think that all the way back to our earlier conversation, that is a critical function of a great marketer, is understanding not just how to create the idea, but how to land it effectively to create partnerships cross-functionally, where your finance CFO gets on board, your sales VP gets on board, you know, your CEO gets on board, and all of a sudden, you've moved the resource forward. And you've moved the brand forward and then you've adopted those new customers because you knew you could take it to market. And I think that's um, an often missed opportunity by a lot of marketers is creating those partnerships, truly understanding the challenges of each individual co-partner. It, it's without a doubt the reality of it. If you have a company out there that's exceedingly siloed and you guys rarely get together between sales and marketing and finance, you guys are making a giant error and you're not going to survive past whatever the cycle that you're in now. You might if you're a huge company, but you will fade. You got to break and, that down. You got to break it down. And the reality is, is that it it's so much more organic than what it is. And let, let's be honest, marketing started at, you know, the very first farmer's market. You know, you got Mike puts up an apple stand. You got Stan who puts up an apple stand. And, you know, their apples are pretty equal. They're great. Then Mike puts up a sign and he says, my apples are, my, the king buys my apples. And, you know, his apples are like, oh my God, the king eats those apples. And then the next thing you know, Stan's got a sign up and he says, well, the queen loves my apples and she makes the apple pies that everyone loves out of it. So now 
they're doing this and then they're now essentially growing brand and this is at like this is 300 years ago 400 years ago at a castle right like but it's it's exactly where it started and before you know it well mike's put his wife in and mike's wife's pretty hot and so now she is doing it so now they're now they're using sex to sell apples and then, well, Stan loads in his two daughters. Well, guess what? Stan's daughter's not too bad to look at. So not only, you know, they're, they're battling back and forth, but they're pulling up all these same old, these tools have existed forever. And before you know it, price is the thing. And apples then, once you bring price in, they become a commodity and everything changes because now you're, you're, you're racing to the bottom. Soon as, soon as you cannot do it with any other fabulous branded thing, you end up in the race to the bottom. And then and the more you control brand, the more you can control price. And you can continue to push that price because you're creating value, even if it's not, you know, <laughs> just the simple product value, right? And the standard margins, you can create value based on the intangible thing, which is the branded experience that has tangible assets that validate your purchase. But ultimately, you know, great brands are worth more to people. A million percent, a million percent. And well, that's actually surprisingly, the pharmaceutical world may have, may have broken that with generics and function. There are some weird, yeah. there are things that break that down um, in certain areas. Uh, I just spent, I don't know, two weeks doing a super in-depth series of podcasts on cannabis because Canada is legalized mm -hmm. and I don't get it. Like I, it's not my world to market. I've never understood it. So I really wanted to understand all the different issues that are going on in there. <laughs> They're literally uh, having all the same issues that, you know, there's bench maids in there <laughs> and there's Swiss army knives and there's Japanese knives. And then there's all this generic stuff that just sort of ends up at, you know, how do you break through? Yeah. Break and through? It, it's a really interesting um, sphere and brand is a thing. Like I like doesn't, I, I talked to some, her podcast is live. Um, the queen of bud, Ashley, she's brilliant, brilliant. Like she's brilliant. Uh, she's a, uh, was a mom who was struggling, uh, built this premium, beautiful, uh, like Gucci style, wheat brand and she is like bending her way through the restrictions that exist she's doing mm -hmm. it really well she is a marketing genius and she had no clue she lit like she she knew she was good yeah uh, but she like i was like there were spots in the podcast where i was just like laughing hysterically i'm like you're so smart that's <laughs> like unbelievable what you just told me you did um but it exists out there and and i think it's amazing um, Joe, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, to hear your story, um, wherever, you know, I hope that you spend enough time to get Benchmade, um, really fundamentally, uh, stable as far as a brand, not that they weren't stable, but as generations go on, brands sometimes sure. fail. Uh, so it'd be amazing to see them, um, with a solid foundation of who they are, what they are, and, and how to grow Benchmade as a brand, not relying on any specific product. 
um, which is really exciting to see that you're there to do it. Uh, where you end up next uh, will be amazing to see. Um, and, and or if Benchmade is your final destination and you're there for years, they're very lucky people. So thank you for your time. Um, it's super appreciated. We've blasted through one of our longest podcasts an hour 30. I hope everybody appreciates uh, getting to hear your story because it's amazing. Uh, everyone check out the new Benchmade uh, content and site and brand uh, structure that's going to be coming out in the next few months uh, in 2023. It's going to be cool to see. I'm excited. Um, and I'm, by the way, I've got a list. You mentioned the guy at Oakley who was dogging on you, which by the way, I believe, do you, do you look at the person who told you that you're on Sean's coattails? Do you look at that as I'm looking at it going like that person and I've got a list of five people that I believe it is that I'll <laughs> hit you with afterwards. Um, do you believe they did you the greatest favor? Like, do you look at, at that conversation as a positive right now? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And I, I looked at it as a positive almost immediately afterwards because it was something that I didn't have a good answer to. Right. Mm. Had I had a good answer, it was like, no, but I did that. Right. Like I, if I had a quick way to be able to validate my own contributions that felt less emotional. Uh, but now that conversation was one of those catalysts similar to Pat Bridges calling me, mm. you know, when I was 15, where boom, a path had to be taken in order to um, prove that what I thought I could be, I, I, I could become. And I love building, right? And so I had to know, I had to know if I could do it. I had to know if that single statement was true or not true. And I, I certainly learned a lot about um, what it takes to build a brand. And for anybody who's a marketer or an entrepreneur, hats off. It's a, it's a, it's a tough road to, to, to try to build something. Um, it's, it's likewise hard, hard, hard to steward something, but it's really, it's really different when you're trying to transform and mm. really build something from the ground up. So to those of you that are out there with your ideas, you know, go after it, don't give up and, uh, you know, keep trying to change the world because damn straight you will. And uh, you'll prove those people wrong. And ultimately, you'll prove yourself right, which is which is pretty fun to be able to kind of look back, you know, at a point in a career and say, oh, this was, this was so fun to talk through. You know, you think about um, how much I talk about marketing. I very rarely talk about marketing. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So, Jamie, thanks so much for, you know, hosting me today, but also for what you're doing. I think it's really cool for everybody to have access to different ways to kind of navigate through the brand landscape. I love it. Uh, thank you. No better place to end this than now. Uh, enjoy the day. Um, and we'll be talking very soon. Everyone else, thanks for joining in again on Marketeers Clubhouse. We learned a lot today. Appreciate it. <laughs>